One of the most famous feuds known throughout the world is uh, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, it actually started out with just a, a, one dis- a dispute over two wealthy landowning families over one insignificant hog. That's how it all began, but it led to a 13-year battle of kidnap, murder, abandonment, arson and brutality. More than a dozen family members were murdered, along with dozens of bounty hunters who were sent along to try and rein them in. And, of course, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys has become legendary. But there is an even greater division, uh, which certainly has existed throughout the world, Um, And the sad thing is it's a division within the very institution which at its inception was ordained to be one of unity and truth and love. And this is the divisions that we find within the church. And sometimes in the church we can see anything but unity, anything but truth and anything but love. And I'm just going to share with you now one of my greatest sadnesses is that this church here, Bush Disciples, is the same as basically every other church that, that has begun in the history of the world. Um, it's begun because Christians have disagreed on the direction that God has been leading the church. And I would dare to say that most people who once used to regularly worship on a Sunday morning at some church somewhere but, but now ne- never even set foot in a church anymore most of those people it would be because of hurt that has been done to them by somebody who is a Christian or calls themselves a Christian. And so they've withdrawn from fellowship from the church because of this hurt. And I want to start out by saying, God forgive us. God forgive us for any part that we've ever played in that, for any hurt that we've ever caused anyone. Um, us personally, um, or, or us as a group, Um, if that's ever caused anyone to stop coming along and and worshipping God at at any um, place of worship that we've ever been in. Christian unity is very important. Now I know it's important because Jesus prayed for it. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples and for all those who would follow after him. That's us. Jesus was praying for us. And he prayed that we would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one, united in truth, united in love, united in relationship. So if Jesus prayed for that, what's gone wrong? Why is the church in the state that it's in? Why is the church broken and fractured? Why in this little town of St George are there nine gatherings that I know of who come together as church on this very morning. Why? Well, we could spend weeks studying all of the great schisms of history. We could spend another few months looking at at a local level and thinking, well, this, this is what happened historically here and this is why this division happened and whatever. But I think we'd find that it all boils down to one small word that explains it all, sin. So here's a question for you. Can a church sin? Well, of course it can. A church is made up of people. It's a gathering of people. We're all part of a church. By the way, there is only one church in St George. That's how God sees it, one church. All of the Christians are the church. 
But then we have little gatherings where we identify as a church and we can sin individually and we can sin together corporately. Um, and if there's one thing that we, that we can learn as we read the Bible, it is that God's people have a nasty habit of turning their backs on him. We have a nasty habit of falling short of all that God desires of us and all that God requires. And so I'm just so thankful that our God is a merciful God because I know that I fall short of God all the time. And you know, you might feel that you've oh, fallen short of God again, I've done this wrong thing again. You too can be thankful that we have a merciful God who forgives us our sins in times like this. But what should we do about this sin? When sin enters a church, what do we do about it? A commonly held view both within the church and outside the church is that Christians should all naturally get on with each other. Now that's a very lovely notion and, and um, it just makes you feel a little goosebumpy thinking about it, we, we, that we might all just naturally get on with each other. But I'm pretty sure that most of us here have got our feet firmly enough on the ground that we know that that's just not the way it is. It doesn't just happen naturally, or it doesn't for me. Um, you and I, we can see division in the church. We can see sin in the church. And the Bible is a book full of practical application. In fact, most of the New Testament, rather than telling us how to be saved, is actually telling us, okay, now that you are saved, this then is how you should live. And so I just find the, the Bible just so practical. Um, and, and for most of my reading, I, I find the letters to the churches, which were written by the apostles to, the, to all of these churches, just so practical in application for me in my daily life. As it just says, okay, you are saved. This then is how you should live. And the Bible teaches us so much about this because living the Christian life does not come naturally. Christian unity is not a natural trait for us humans. Christian unity is a working of the Spirit. It goes against the human fleshly nature. It's not natural. It is a learned and practised behaviour. And it's something that you and I need to work at. And we have to work at it hard, of course, with the help and the grace of God. God's not excluded from this. God is the only one who makes this possible. Our Bible reading this morning guides us in how we should deal with sin and division when it arises in a church. And I suspect that it probably takes most of us to a place that we really don't want to be. It takes us to confrontation repentance and forgiveness. And unless we go through all of these steps, the the issue would never be properly resolved and the sin in the church would begin to fester and strain relationships and cause division and dissension and backbiting. So if we have a look at the first step, confrontation. Verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now, some of us are really good at confrontation. I'll tear strips off you, brother. Um, or there was one woman one day told her pastor, oh, I, I told that other so-and-so, I gave her a piece of my mind. 
and the pastor said, are you sure you could afford such a generous offering? Um, Some of us are really good at confrontation, um, but I don't think that's the sort of confrontation that Jesus is after here. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I think that's the sort of confrontation that he's talking about. Confrontation is required. Somebody once said how much easier it is to be critical than to correct. Do you agree with that? It's much easier to be critical than to actually take the time and effort to correct someone. How will I ever know to stop doing what I've been doing and to ask for forgiveness if nobody tells me that what I've been doing has been hurting them? And there are so many nice people in the church who try to keep harmony by not saying anything at all. They avoid confrontation at all costs. And while this might be a very nice notion, it's not scriptural. And it's certainly not effective. Think for a moment. Um, those of you who work with sheep know what I'm talking about. If you get a burr in your hand, right? Um, if you leave it there, it will begin to fester and your skin will either become hard and calloused or it will become infected. And that's the same as it is if we leave sin in the church undealt with. The people of that church, us, we either become hard and calloused so that people aren't going to hurt us anymore or we become bitter with infection. And so confrontation is the very necessary first step. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Now, of course, if he doesn't listen, the confrontation needs to escalate. The next step is you take a couple of others along as witnesses and and you talk about this together. And if they still don't listen, then it's to be brought before the whole church. And, of course, the aim here is not to condemn the person, nor is it to publicise their sin and say, oh, look everybody, look what this person's been up to and doing. That's not the reason to do it. The reason is so that that person and that relationship can be restored. And so the second step is repentance. Confrontation should lead to repentance. If I've done something wrong and somebody brings it to my attention... Uh, sometimes it can be easy to ignore that person. and Well, that's called hardness of heart. But if several people take me to task over the same issue, if a few people all come to me and say, Michael, we've seen such and such in your life and we don't think it's good, we don't think that's honouring of God and we think you need to repent of that, well, it's a lot harder for me to ignore that, but I still have a choice. Am I going to listen to these people and repent of that sin or am I going to just stand on my digs and say, well, that's your problem. That's not my problem, it's your problem. Now, I know what the natural fleshly option is, but the Spirit calls us to something quite profoundly different because the purpose of confrontation is to lead the person to repentance. If I've sinned against you, you need to tell me so that I can repent of that sin and get forgiveness both from you and from the Lord. There's a really good example of this. Um, 
when Paul wrote to his second letter to the Corinthian church. So in chapter 7, verse 8, he says this, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, he's talking about a previous letter that he's written, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Don't you see what's going on here? He had written a previous letter in which he drilled down on this church and been quite harsh on them, telling them, listen, you're doing this, this and this and this wrong and, and that's all sinning against God and against each other. You're not acting in a loving way towards each other in your church. You need to repent of this. You need to put all of that aside and get yourselves right with God and with each other. And that caused that church a great deal of sorrow, a great deal of pain. But what it led to was repentance. And they repented and got themselves right with God. And it's only when true forgiveness happens in a church that divisions can be healed. And repentance is so important that if anyone refuses to repent, they have no right to be numbered among the believers. Now, over the last few couple of months, we've seen some pretty harsh statements here. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and and here's another harsh statement that Jesus made. He said, If someone refuses to repent, you should treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now that means you still love that person, but unrepentant sin has no place in the church. And I'll tell you why. A unified church is a powerful church. But a church which tolerates sin, a church which does not address that sin and does not repent of that sin, can never be a unified church. It can never be unified with Christ and the people in that church can never be unified with one another. A church which refuses to repent of its sin can never be witness to the reconciling and saving work of Christ. That means that if we don't model this reconciliation of Christ, if we don't enter into the full forgiveness of Christ, how can we model that to the world? When people see us as a church... Do they see a living, breathing example of the reconciliation between us and God as they see reconciliation between each other? We can never be truly unified with Christ if we refuse to repent of our sin. And that's one of the primary reasons that this little church here began. A unified church, even if it's a very small church, a church who are unified with each other and with Christ are a powerful church. Now that might sound a bit back to front to us because we think of the mega churches as being the big powerful ones. I heard on, on Christian radio this week they were talking about mega churches and then they actually started talking about a new phenomenon they're calling the giga churches. They're the ones that have over 10,000 members in them. 
And um, we might think that, yeah, those mega churches and the giga churches, they're the big powerful ones that are doing everything for God. But you know what? It's exactly the opposite that has always been true. Throughout the history of the world, the difference has been made because of small churches. Small unified churches. Not churches that cut themselves off from other churches or cut themselves off from each other. But when small unified churches have the Spirit of God in them and have the love of Christ that they want to radiate out into the world, that's where the difference is made. Verse 18 says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, that's a pretty small church, isn't it? Two? If two of you agree on anything, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Whose name have we come together today in? We've come together in the name of Christ. That's why we're here today. Who's here with us today? The Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. Do you realise that? As you come together in your small little Bible study group, as husband and wife get together to pray, as we come together on a Sunday morning to worship God, who's with us? Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. I've kind of copped a bit of flack from some other churches over the last few months and I've heard things like the last thing St George needs is another church. I'll tell you what St George needs. St George needs a church that is unified. doesn't matter how little or insignificant that church can be. And my prayer is that all of the churches of St George will become unified, together in spirit, together in belief. A church unified in agreement, a church unified in truth, in repentance, in faith, in love, is a powerful church. Could we be a church like that? Can we be a church that is unified in those things. When a church is in agreement with each other and the will of God in the mission of God that that God is calling them to, and when a church relies on God to do that, it will be done. Believe it. This is where faith kicks in. Christian unity is so important. Jesus prays for it. Jesus prays for you and I. And the Bible shows us how we are to work towards it. When sin arises, confrontation, repentance and forgiveness. I hope that we would be so ready for repentance and forgiveness that confrontation would only be a tiny little, by the way, did you know such and such is happening? The trouble is... 
Many of us hope for repentance without confrontation. I'm not going to tell that person that, that God just make them say they're sorry. Make them stop doing what they're doing. And we expect forgiveness to happen without this confrontation. Sorry, repentance to happen without the confrontation. That rarely happens. That's where we turn into the, the, um, the burr that gets all hard and calloused or, or festers up. Some of us try forgiving people without there being any repentance. Um, we sort of think that we're better than God in that respect. God forgives us when we repent. But we try to forgive people without them repenting. We know they're going to do the same old behaviours again and put us in the same old position again and here we are trying to forgive them. Well, that's really helpful. Some people hope for a healing of relationships as if it just takes time. You've heard the saying, time heals all wounds. Rubbish. Rubbish. Time does not heal all wounds. There isn't enough time for that to happen. Some are willing to do the confronting, um, but unwilling to do the forgiving. And confrontation has no place in the church unless it's going to be closely followed by a forgiving and loving heart. It takes all three of those. Confrontation, repentance, forgiveness. Now sometimes we might find ourselves in the place of asking, well how many times am I going to have to forgive this person, God? It's been an ongoing battle as always. If it's not one thing, it's another and I'm constantly having to forgive this person. How many times? Can anyone give me the answer to that? Louder? (laughs) It's really as many times as it takes. And we're going to be we're going to be actually studying that passage of scripture next time I preach in a couple of weeks' time. So we'll let, leave that until then. A unified church doesn't just happen. The short-term pain of confrontation, properly followed by repentance and forgiveness—that is a lot of forgiveness—is all that can keep us together. And it's the only thing that will keep us strong for God. My prayer for this little church is that we would be united, that we would have, be united with Christ, that we would be united in truth, that we would be united in faith, that we would be united in the hope that we have in Christ and that we would be united in love. My prayer is that when one of us sins against the other, and it will happen, right? I'm giving you the heads up now. It will happen. One of us is going to hurt somebody else in this church. And when that happens, my prayer is that we would stick by the God-ordained process, confrontation, repentance and forgiveness. Because that's the only way that relationships can be truly restored. I also pray for the wider Christian church in St George. I pray for a time when the whole Christian church in St George is unified in Christ. When we will be united in truth. 
when we are united in faith, when we are united in hope and united in love. I pray for that time. Um, That's a pretty big ask. It's only a miracle of God that can bring that about. But we worship a God who does miracles. I don't pray for a unity that covers up sin. I'm not looking for a unity that ignores the festering thorn. I'm not a unity that is like putting fresh paint on a rotting timber wall. I'm talking about a unity that goes to the very foundations. A unity of agreement. A unity in Christ, united in truth, united in faith, united in hope, united in love. Because a church united in this way is a powerful church.